We are going to be entering into our time of teaching now, and we've been in a series of messages uh, this year that we've called Practicing Faith. We've been looking at Christian practices. What is it that the scriptures command us to do? And if we are to walk this life as a Christian, what are we supposed to be doing? It's a question that we all sometimes struggle with. And I would break down our practices into three main categories. One of them is how we interact and what we do with God. And the next is how we interact as a church, as a community of believers And the third is, how do we interact with the world around us? And what we're going to be talking about today, I think, would fall into the first two categories. Because we're going to be talking today about this practice of singing. And something that I fought against, and I want to be very clear about right now, is that when we're talking about singing, we, as a Christian, we often think about what we just did. That we sang some songs together in a church setting. But that's not really what we're going to be talking about. Singing certainly can be, and absolutely is often, worship. But when we read in Scripture, we have Ephesians 5, verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. And in Colossians 3, 16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So why do the scriptures tell us to sing? And I think it's because the God who created us, he knows what music does to us. And and I would phrase it this way, is that we do have songs, that songs can often reflect our mood, can't they? That when you are upbeat and happy, you're going to listen to songs that make you feel uh, that kind of reinforce your mood. Or if you, you know, I was in junior high and, and a girl dumped me, as they often did, and I would have to listen to love songs. You know, I just was getting really heartbroken because this was, this, she was it, I swore. Don't worry, I married up, it's okay. So, and, and I would also phrase it this way, as Jordan, our dearly beloved bearded preacher, who is, uh, he is preaching at another church this morning, uh, he often beats me into the office when we're working during the week. And it, it, when he arrives beforehand, he often has music playing. And I try to gauge what kind of mood he's in and what kind of day it's going to be based on the music that he's playing. And so this guy's music tastes, let's just call them eclectic, all right? I have walked in on everything from Justin Bieber to hip-hop or rap. Uh, I have walked in on uh, 90s R&B, and I have even walked in on Mongolian death metal. Yikes, all right? I mean, I've walked in on everything except for country because he is of the Lord, so. Come on. Man, that was about the right reaction. People were cheering and, okay, and everything. And so you know what I'm talking about. When you go and you want to talk with someone and have a conversation about music, you don't say, hey, do you like music? No, what's the question that you ask? What kind of music that you like? It's already baked into the cake. We assume that people like music. And I heard it phrased this way that... I heard a phrase this way this week, that you are what you sing. Now, if you sing Mongolian death metal, I have no idea what you are, all right? <laughs> but as, as the image bearers of God, there is a creativity that has been put inside of us that is uniquely expressed through the arts, through music, and that is unique to the rest of creation. 
So when the Bible tells us that we are to be singing to one another and singing to God, it is that component of us that it is cutting through to, our emotions, our gut. Music has a way of cutting through to our pre- through our pretenses and getting to the heart of it. Those things, those emotions that I, have, I often have such a hard time expressing. And I am convinced that music is something that God has always intended to unite us. But sadly, we have used it to divide us. And I'm not going to say that you're not allowed to have your own personal preferences. You could say you like country. I don't know why, but I will believe you. And you're allowed to do that. And I'm not going to let this devolve into a debate about music because that's not the point. The Bible is remarkably silent as to the style of music that we are to be singing. The content is another matter. But if we are to follow the instructions that we just read in those passages from Ephesians and Colossians, and then we are to sing as a body of believers, our individual motivation needs to be, what songs can I sing for you? Not, what songs can you sing for me? And I want to share this quote by Charles Spurgeon, which uh, delighted me to no end this week. I'm going to put it on the screen here. We would do well if we added to our godly service more singing. The world sings. The millions have their songs. And I must say, the taste of the populace is a very, very remarkable taste just now as to its favorite songs. They are, many of them, so absurd and meaningless as to be unworthy of an idiot. I should insult an idiot if I could suppose that such songs as people sing nowadays would really be agreeable to him. Yet these things will be heard from men, and places will be thronged to listen to hear the stuff. Charles Spurgeon was writing this in 1871. If I had one wish right now, I want to bring him back and say, tell me your thoughts on Katy Perry and Lady Gaga, okay? <laughs> I really would love to hear that, but anyways, I digress. And here's the heart of it. Now, why should we, with the grand psalms of David, with the noble hymns of Cowper, of Milton, of Watts, why should not we sing as well as they? Let us sing the songs of Zion. They are cheerful as the songs of Sodom any day. Let us drown the howling nonsense of Gomorrah with the melodies of the new Jerusalem. Music breaks into our minds in ways that we can't fully comprehend. The most meaningless, mundane, idiotic tunes have a way of sticking in our heads, right? Ever got a song stuck in your head you really don't want to be there? I mean, instead of humming the mind-numbing tune of Baby Shark, what if we were, what if the song of our, of our, songs of our lives were always songs that brought us to focus in on God? What if these were the tunes that we were singing to ourselves and humming to ourselves and whistling each and every day? And in an effort to follow the instructions of Scripture, to rewrite the songs for our own lives, and I want to spend some time today in the book of Psalms. Because the Psalms were the hymn book of the people of Israel as well as the early Christian church. And I had this thought when I was trying to prepare for today's teaching of, you know, let's spend some time in the Psalms. Let's use biblical psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's what we, what we are to be about. And then this psalm came across my path twice in three days. So I took it as a sign and I rolled with it. I want to read this together that we are going to express this together. Psalm 23, a very famous psalm. Uh, one you will most often hear at a funeral, and it's appropriate for a funeral setting, but I think it's more appropriate for, to make this the song of your life. So I want us to all read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. David, the shepherd boy who would later become the great king of Israel, he wrote this psalm remembering his days as a shepherd, how God was the greater shepherd. Jesus would call himself by these same words in John chapter 10, and he's hearkening back to this imagery used by David, that his Jewish audience clearly would have understood what he was getting at. So quickly this morning, I want to share with you five truths about God that we can glean from this text, because you don't need to be a shepherd to appreciate the imagery that's being shared here. Rewrite this psalm in your own context. This could easily be a stay-at-home parent song. It could be a salesman's song, a doctor's song, a school teacher's song, a retired person's song. No matter what it is your walk in life is, I want you to learn more about this text this morning so that you can think through about how you can use these truths about God that this song provides us to apply to your unique walk in life. The first truth about God is that the Lord will provide for us. This is the first thing that David states in the opening line of his song, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And some of your translations may have, I shall not want. And that it's kind of right, but newer translations have it this way, that I will not be in want. Because this walk with God, it is not about what we do for God. And Christianity is about a God who in his infinite power and his holiness, he had every right to just flick us off the globe. But instead, he left the realms of heaven to walk amongst us so that we might know him more. Christianity is always about what God does for us. It's different than any other religion that has been fabricated by man. The opening line of this song states that as long as I'm with God, I'll need nothing more than him. If we think about this, if the Lord is your shepherd, then you'll need nothing else. It's the shepherd that goes ahead of the sheep, not behind them. The shepherd guides the sheep, and he finds places where the sheep can be safe. Now, I don't know how many sheep farmers we have in here. I'm guessing it's less than 20, uh, roughly, okay? Now, I've shared illustrations from this stage before, but know this, that when Jesus says, and he tells us that we are like little lambs, that's not a compliment, If you know anything about sheep, they're dumb, they smell, they're accident-prone. Oh, and to top it off, they're willful. They're stubborn. They think they got it right. They're they're like, you know, always little three-year-olds, roughly. Uh, Anyone have a stubborn one of those? Okay. And I remember illustrations in Sunday school where I would glue cotton balls onto, you know, paper plates or construction paper, and I would think that, oh, they're these bouncy, cute, little fluffy things, and that's not us, all right? Philip Keller wrote a book about this psalm that completely changes the perspective on this concept of being sheep that need a shepherd. 
The shepherd protects the sheep because they can't protect themselves. Martin Luther said that faith is best expressed in our personal pronouns. And with that in mind, listen to the opening line again. The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I'll want nothing else. And next he says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. And something that I learned about sheep, you cannot make sheep lie down if they don't want to. I mean, you can knock them over, but they're going to get right back up. They're willful and they're stubborn. And as I read here, there's two things that a lamb needs in order to lie down. And first, they need to be free of fear. And they need to feel safe and secure. And the second thing is that they won't lie down if they're still hungry. And I say amen to that, all right? So if a lamb is scared or if its appetite hasn't been satisfied, then it won't lie down. And David says of God that he makes me lie down in green pastures. It's not a command. God is not forcing us to do anything against our will. It means that God is making us feel safe and content. He makes us feel safe and full. In the next line, he leads me beside quiet waters. A lamb will not go near a running stream because they're covered in wool. And if they were to get swept off its feet, the, the wool would soak up all the water. They'd become way too heavy and they would drown. And so when it says that you listen to what our shepherd does for us, he leads us beside still waters. He leads us to places where we can be safe and he can provide for us everything that we need. The second truth is that the Lord will guide us. He leads me. Oh, where'd we go? There we go. Did all of this fall out? All right. Anyway, second, the Lord will guide us. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we read that last line, for his name's sake. And many of us can twist that to mean that God's only doing this for his own good. That he's managing us or using us, but that's not true. You see, the goodness of God is tied to the glory of God. And the glory of God is found in his goodness to us and not in our benefit to him. I want to say that again. The goodness, the glory of God is found in how good he is to us, not in what we do for him. God's glory is what is on display when his people respond to the goodness that he has shown them and how they care for each other, how they care for the planet that he gave us to take care of. So when God leads us in the paths of righteousness, it's so that we can demonstrate his kindness and his mercy that he has already demonstrated to us. He does this so that we can bring glory to his name because he revels in his goodness. He revels in his kindness and mercy. He is not a God who demands everything of us just so that he can have it. No, he is a God who gives us everything first so that we can respond to him and to give him glory. You can look at all the other world religions and none of them offer you that. God is most God when we receive what he wants us to have. And David says that he will guide us on the path of righteousness. He will guide us in our prayers. He will guide us when we study scripture. He will guide us when we gather together as a community. He will guide us to where we need to be, provided that we would follow him. And the next thing I want to hold on to is that the Lord will protect us. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I want to pause there. The valley of death was a real place on the road to Jerusalem. A lot of scholars would speculate that this is what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When you have someone who traveled on the road, it was not uncommon for people to be beaten and robbed or even killed in this place. It was a very dangerous place. And David was talking about this valley of the shadow of death. 
he was talking about where he would have to lead sheep into ravines and clefts in the mountains where it where dangerous animals would, would live and they would want to eat the sheep or people might be able to hide out and try to steal sheep from them. And so the sheep were useless. They couldn't protect themselves. So David had to protect them and there was nobody around to protect David. And he talks about this place and he is saying that even when I can't control my own world, when I can't keep myself safe, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And it's interesting that when David uses this imagery of a rod and a staff, when I hear rod, I just think, you know, you run down to Home Depot, you grab a six-foot dowel rod, and you can just get a grip on it and hit anything that comes into your way. But back in those days, what they would do is they would dig out at the roots of a tree, and they would get about a four- to six-foot length of the, of the, the trunk of the tree, but then they would have this knot of roots at the bottom. So they'd have this wooden knot that uh, kind of a wood thing, and they'd be really good, really effective with using this as a weapon. They'd be able to throw it, kind of like, you know, Thor and his hammer. Uh, They'd be able to, you know, just whack people on the head with it if they wanted to, like whack-a-mole. And a shepherd would not only have a slingshot and some stones, but he'd also have this tool called a rod. And the shepherd's staff, having grown up as a city kid, I didn't really know anything about animal husbandry, but the only staff that I was ever familiar with was the one that they would use to yank Bugs Bunny off stage with, right? All right, because it was bad vaudeville. But the shepherd's staff had this curved hook at the end, which they would use to guide and to lead the sheep. But they would also use it, uh, we have this image of them always, you know, just yanking out, get back in here and everything, that was really rough. But that's not necessarily the case that when you had lambs, you had to be very careful about how much you would handle them because if the scent of the human would get onto the lamb, the mother may not nurse it. So they would also use the staff to gently guide them so that they didn't touch them, again, for this sheep's protection. And we notice what David just did. We have a God who has the strength and the ability to protect us, but we also have a God that is gentle enough to nurture us. We have a God who will show his strong hand of discipline and he will correct us if we step outside of his will and his protection for us. But he is also the God who wipes away our tears. Doesn't that sound like our God? So whether you're a business owner, a banker, a farmer, it doesn't matter. This psalm is your song. It is your story. Because veterans of the faith can testify, we have a God who will fight for us. And we have a God that will also comfort us. This is what David is celebrating with this psalm. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Another one of our Christian practices is hospitality. That we extend warm greetings and invitations to guests. Something God's people are still supposed to be all about. And when people came into your home, back in these days, they also entered your protection. If you accepted someone into your house and a stranger came seeking after them to do them harm, you would be willing to give up your life to protect them because you had granted them a seat at your table. And David is saying that our God invites us to his table in the midst of our enemies because we have no doubt where our hope and our strength lies. The fourth truth is that the Lord will heal us In verse 3, he restores my soul. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would write, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And in the context of being a shepherd, 
there was this term called downcast. Sheep, because they have these stubby little legs and, you know, they would sometimes eat too much. If they didn't get sheared, they'd get too fat and full of wool. They could be, could be knocked over, pushed over, or rolled onto their backs, and they wouldn't be able to get up. And so they would just lay there, and if nobody ever came around to rescue them, then they would become a wolf's buffet. So a shepherd would find that if a sheep had wandered into a, into a ravine and fallen over, if they were too thick and full of, you know, and fat and full of wool, they weren't able to get up, they would be called downcast. And the shepherd couldn't just flip them over and smack them on the rear tail to get going again. No, I mean, they'd be on their backs for a while and all the blood would rush out of their legs. We can relate that we've all had a foot fall asleep on us, right? Can't just walk on it right away. And I'm told that a good shepherd would pick up the lamb and massage its legs to get the blood flowing again. And then gently set it back down so it could waddle off and get more grass. And again, doesn't that sound like our God? Anyone can testify that God is gentle when he sets us back up on our feet after we've fallen down. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. He restores our souls gently. Verse 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The anointing is what a shepherd would do for a sheep if it had ever gotten stuck in a thicket, if it had gotten cut or scraped on rocks or thorns. They didn't have Vaseline back then. Uh, They had this ointment of different spices and oils, and they would anoint them or cover them with this oil. And anointing is an image that we find throughout the Bible. And we have a God who not only sets us back up, but he heals our wounds. He knows the perfect ointment to calm our hearts. And the fifth point is that David says that the Lord will pursue us. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy, or some of your translations may have love, Goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Scholars would point out that this word follow in our English translations may not be as accurate as it needs to be. It may be more accurately translated as pursue. We don't have a God who we need to impress. We have a God who ought to impress us. We have a God who has been asking you to join him in a covenantal relationship for your entire existence. Every moment of your life, God has been asking you. He has been calling to you, pursuing you, asking you to trust him. He's saying, let me be your shepherd. Goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. The goodness of God to the glory of God. And then David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not only do I have a God who loves me, I have a God who is after me. A God who will listen to my no while constantly asking me for my yes. And when I do say yes, that God will take me into his home and make me his. This is the same David who would also write in the Psalms that I would rather spend one day in the presence of my God than a thousand years anyplace else because he knew who God was. So the simple question that this song is calling us to to answer, the Lord can be your shepherd. Will you let him? We've been trying to end these teachings with very practical things that you can do to apply the lesson of the day to your life. And I think this one is very simple. Change the soundtrack of your life. We've learned these truths about God. Now let's rewrite this psalm for our own lives. 
What is going to speak to us? What are we going to be singing and humming and whistling? Are we going to be singing songs about God? We would all do better if we would fill our ears and our minds and our hearts with songs and music that glorifies God. You are what you sing. Sing the songs of God. Let's stand together.